0: This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Back in the early part of the last century, there was a panic about the fact that public school children could not read and could not write. It became very much a topic of cultural conversation in the 1950s and the 1960s, and of course, the question that was asked uh, proverbially by a title that became well-known was this, why Johnny can't do this or why Johnny can't do that. Along comes Professor T. David Gordon to ask why Johnny can't preach and why Johnny can't sing hymns. The titles alone mean this is a conversation we need to have. Dr. T. David Gordon is Professor of Religion and Greek at Grove City College in Pennsylvania. He has taught there since 1999, teaching courses in religion, Greek humanities, and media ecology. Prior to that, he taught New Testament and other institutions, including Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Massachusetts. He's also served as a pastor, including service at the Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashua, New Hampshire. He's the author of several books, including a duo of very important recent books I want you to know about, entitled Why Johnny Can't Preach, The Media Have Shaped the Messengers, and Why Johnny Can't Sing Hymns, How Pop Culture Rewrote the Hymnal. Professor Gordon, welcome to Thinking in Public.
1: Thanks, uh, Dr. Mulder. It's great to be here.
0: You know, when I looked at these two books, my first thought was someone desperately needed to write these. and, uh, And that someone turns out to be Professor T. David Gordon. What prompted you to write these books? I think it's very interesting how you begin the book, Why Johnny Can't Preach, about your urgency in writing that volume.
1: Yeah, that one probably did have more existential urgency, um, because the thoughts had been rattling around my head for a number of years, but I was afraid that such a book book might appear to be uncharitable, and so I just didn't write it. But then when I had stage 3 cancer in 2004, with about a 25% survival rate, I began to feel that it would be irresponsible to die without saying this, and so... My conscience actually started bothering me. And so uh, on the days that I had enough energy to do something, uh, I wrote the book.
0: Well, I'm very thankful that you did, and uh, also thankful that the Lord's preserved you for this conversation and for much fruitful ministry beyond the time of urgency when you wrote this book. But when you say you thought it might uh, ruffle some feathers, I I have to say I don't know why, (laughs) except with phrases like this. You say, let me attempt to establish my thesis that many ordained people simply can't preach. On the next page, you say, preaching today is ordinarily poor. And then you mentioned that preaching today is in substantial disarray. You are ready to make an argument.
1: Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, I think so.
0: Yeah, I, I look at that, and I realize that that's a thesis you want to establish. And I like the way you introduce it. You say, I've come to recognize that many, many individuals today have never been under a steady diet of competent preaching. As a consequence, they are satisfied with what they hear because they have nothing better with which to compare it. Why don't you talk about that that, that world of preaching for a moment? How, how did you come to make that diagnosis?
1: Yeah, the diagnosis took place over time. Uh, at first, I thought I merely smelled a rat, as it were, and I distrusted my uh, olfactory judgment. Uh, I thought maybe I just recently graduated from seminary and this sort of a thing. So back in the early 80s, I thought perhaps I was being hypercritical. But then I ran into people who had served on pulpit committees uh, and who had hired men. And uh, having heard the men, I wasn't too impressed with them as preachers. And so I can remember asking people, why did you hire this person? And twice within a single year time, people who had served on those committees said, well, I've served on pulpit committees for 30 years, and we know from the outset we're not going to find anyone who can preach. So we just hire men who have other abilities. And at that point, I realized I wasn't the only one who had that uh, point of view. And so then I started trying to look for some objective criteria, and that's when I ran across uh, Dabney's book uh, on sacred rhetoric, his thoughts on preaching. And uh, he lists in that book seven cardinal requis- requisites of a sermon. Not excellencies, but requisites, things that every sermon has to have. And so I started evaluating ser- sermons by Dabney's seven criteria and found not only that many sermons didn't have all of them, but honestly some, some sermons did not have any of what he considered to be cardinal criteria.
0: Yeah, one of those criteria is what we would call a point. And uh, you you tell the anecdote uh, in this book about having spoken to someone uh, who did serve on one of these uh, pulpit search committees and who gave you the report that they had given up looking for a pastor. Uh, He said this, uh, you know, as a businessman, I've been in Rotary for almost 30 years, and every month we have a meeting and someone gives a talk of some sort. When I go home, I can tell my wife what the talk was about and how the person made his point, but I can rarely do that with sermons.
1: Yes, yeah, so, and you know, the individual who said that, by the way, he's, he's now passed away, he's gone along to be with the Lord. The person who said that, Bob Branson, was one of the kindest, most charitable Christian people I've ever known. No one who knew him thought of him as a crank. Um and so, for such a charitable person as he to make that statement was really stunning to me.
0: Well, let's talk about how this happened, and, and this is where your field of media ecology really comes to have a very, very uh, central importance. Uh, you suggest that there are some problems that are prior to the problem in preaching, and. and Answering the question, why Johnny can't preach, you offer two very cogent reasons uh, just off the bat. And and they are that, number one, Johnny can't read, and number two, Johnny can't write. And therefore, those things are sufficient to explain, among other things, why Johnny can't preach.
1: Yes, you'll notice that, you know, I stole the title of this from the earlier uh, two books, uh, Why Johnny Can't Read and Why Johnny Can't Write. And so having stole part of their title uh, I also did so because I thought that was part of the explanation. Right. That uh that we've moved to a point as a culture where we just don't read and we don't write as we once did.
0: Well, let's talk and about that for is, a moment. Let's talk about and, and, why that's so.
1: Well, the uh I do teach media ecology. Um and as a media ecologist, I observe that before we had electronic technologies, uh we communicated by other means. And so um what I did in college and through grad school is I wrote my parents a, a letter every week for seven years, and uh, none of my students does that. So without any effort to become a better preacher, just to stay in touch with my parents, um, I had seven years of experience of composing every week, uh, thinking of what I wanted to say and in what order and, and in what manner, um, and that was common until uh, cell phones became common AT until T was broken up, and so long distance was no longer expensive. So people now text and tweet and cell phone and so forth, um, but they rarely uh, compose a thoughtful letter.
0: It's interesting you mentioned that, yeah, because uh, I have a treasure trove of letters, and one of my uh, my most enjoyable areas of reading and required areas of research is in historical biographies and doing that kind of research where letters are absolutely indispensable. Uh, My good friend, Dr. Mark Dever, a pastor in Washington, D.C., has been one of my closest friends for now going on 30 years. During the time he was studying, doing his graduate work in in Great Britain, and I was doing my graduate work here in the United States, we shared what amount to boxes of letters, and and I I still have those. I look back at that, and I realize I don't get letters like that anymore. I really don't write letters quite like that anymore.
1: That doesn't surprise me uh, that, uh, that it's unusual. In fact, you talk about your historical research, many, many biographies in the 19th century, as you well know, were, were titled The Life and Letters of Robert Lewis, Absolutely. or The Life and Letters. Nowadays, you couldn't write a biography if you depended upon uh, people's correspondence because so few people have it.
0: Well, and it's almost impossible to imagine writing anything that anyone would want to read on the life and text messages of, uh, of any personage, no matter how important or, uh, or celebrated. That's
1: correct. The, remember that the, the virtue, if you will, of electronic technologies is speed. That's their virtue. But the problem is they end up perpetuating speed as, a, as itself a virtue. And, of course, a rapid response cannot, by definition, be a thoughtful response. And so as, as we communicate more, more frequently through these media, what happens is we have more thoughtless communication and less thoughtful communication. Yeah, I so when press... you handwrite, when you handwrite, of course, by yeah. contrast, you have to think very carefully because there's no delete key.
0: Yeah, I, I still take my most important notes by hand, and I still write many of the most important things I write by hand with that kind of, uh, of deliberate intent. Simply because I also like the intimacy. Of the physicality of the paper and uh, and the writing instrument, uh, I often write with a fountain pen just because I I I, I like the the connectivity of it the, uh, the the even the kinetic experience of it because I find that I remember what I write with my hand in a way that I do not remember what I type with my fingers.
1: That's correct, and a neurologist would explain that in terms of the the different portions of the brain that are used. The the motor portions of the brain are now used when you're writing in that way. And uh, and so the recall is, of course, higher. Yeah, and I've got my little uh, Parker Sonnet uh, fountain pen sitting here in front of me. I use it as well.
0: Well, I'm proud to hear it. Uh, when, when, when you do engage in that kind of thing, you know, let, let's face it, we recognize we are antiquarian. When I take out uh, a pen, uh, you know, no one expects you even to have a writing instrument anymore. You know, when you go even to, to check something out and you have to sign a credit card slip, they always give you a pen because no one expects you to have a pen. Uh, I don't know what it would be like not to have a writing instrument, to, you know, mm-hmm. r- right close at hand and, and, and a pad or, or, or something uh, upon which to write it. But that's a part of the media ecology. Let's talk about that. Let's define the term and talk about when it comes to reading and writing, why our current media ecology is uh, is so slanted and stacked against that.
1: Well, Neil Postman coined the term, you know, uh, he he studied under Marshall McLuhan, and so he credits uh, McLuhan for sort of being the father of the discipline. But uh, he coined the term media ecology because he argues that, like a a biological ecologist, you're studying environments. And uh, whenever you introduce a new species into a physical environment, you put, let's say, a wolf, reintroduce it to the forests of North America, you don't have the previous environment plus a wolf. Uh, the change is ecological. once the wolf is there, he 's the predator of some animals and he 's predated by others and so, as a consequence, the whole forest is simply a different thing it's not It's not the previous forest plus a wolf and so also, when cultures introduce new media, they are not the previous culture plus the new medium. they are a different culture altogether, and the commercial forces uh, have an enormous interest in preventing us from raising the question. Because if we raise the question, how are these media shaping us, we might come to a negative conclusion in some regards, and they would lose money.
0: Well, when you start thinking about the child who now, say, is is born in the year 2011 and comes to life as a part of uh, the, the digital revolution such that uh, he or she genuinely is a digital native in the way we now describe, frankly, uh, teenagers and, and those in their early 20s. But you, you can imagine that this child could, could could pass through in the age of the laptop and now the tablet and the smartphone and all the rest without ever learning to read or to write in, in terms of the classic uh, uh, expectations of reading and writing.
1: In the last three years, Dr. Moeller, several of my colleagues and I have noticed that if we give an essay portion of an examination, some of our students cannot handle it because they literally don't have the handwriting skills. To write an answer.
0: Mm. Yeah, and, and they they, just they, they don't have the experience. Do it. Yeah,
1: that's right. They simply it, it used to be that we occasionally encountered someone with what we called poor penmanship, but some of the students now have virtually no penmanship.
0: Well, make a direct line from reading and writing to preaching. Let, let, let's get to the bottom line of your book: Why Johnny can't preach? How is it that these things add up to the contemporary crisis in preaching?
1: Well, as to the first reading, um, to preach well in any true Protestant sense, the sermon must be expository. And when I say expository, I'm not talking about a particular method of exposition. And I'm not saying you have to go verse by verse in your exposition or something like that. What I do mean is you have to make a compelling case to your audience that the thrust of your message is derived from God's Word. That means you have to be able to read the Word of God Carefully and understand its meaning. And so, in an era where we do less and less reading and where much of the reading we do is mere skimming for information, we become people who only read superficially. We read to see the things that we already know, as it were, but not to have the text reconstruct us. And so, I mentioned especially that literary reading is way down, the reading of poetry is way down. It, it's almost not done anymore. And of course, reading poetry requires a very careful scrutiny of a text to get anything out of it. And so in a culture where people read poetry, it was an easy thing to transition to reading the Holy Scriptures carefully, because they already knew how to read carefully. And so as readers, we just are not careful readers. And so a sermon on on God's love from John 3.16 Sounds like the same sermon that would come from Romans 5, 8, because they both talk about God's love, but each says a different thing about God's love. And a careful reader sees that each of those texts merely does not merely affirm God's love, but says a particular thing about it. And so what we get is very generalized sermons that are very loosely and only generally connected to the text. And since preaching is compositional, those who do not write are not very skilled at composition. They don't know how to write a unified discourse. They don't know how to write an organized discourse. They don't know how to make wise decisions about how the first point makes it easier to make the second and third points. And so as a consequence of, of not writing much and not reading carefully, two essential skills of preaching are just not there for many people.
0: One of the values about this conversation with Dr. Gordon is that it underlines the fact that preaching is, in essence, a literary activity. That is, it has to do with words. It is not only verbal. It is also structured. It requires a certain finesse of expression. It is deeply involved in the interpretation of a text. And in this case, it is that text above every other text, the inspired and authoritative, completely trustworthy Word of God, which is at the very center of the Christian life. And of course, of Christian worship. The big issue here is how will God's people hear God's voice? It must be in the act of preaching, through the act of preaching God's word. And that requires, yes, that's right, that Johnny be able to read, read the text of the scripture first and foremost, read it faithfully, read it accurately, read it well. And that Johnny be able also to write, not just so that he can write out a sermon so that there be a manuscript, but so through the discipline of learning literary expression, he can learn how to order his words so that it doesn't sound like a sermon is just the latest from a Twitter feed or a succession of text messages. It has to be better than that. Preaching requires more than that. The worship of God demands something far higher than that. So even the secular world recognizes that Johnny can't read and that Johnny can't write, and then comes along Professor T. David Gordon to tell us that that explains why Johnny can't preach. But in his newest book, he argues that Johnny also can't sing. His new book is Why Johnny Can't Sing Hymns, How Pop Culture Rewrote the Hymnal. Professor Gordon, speak to the media ecology issue when it comes to music, because this adds a whole new dimension to our concern.
1: Yeah, what happens is... uh... Our our musical sensibilities are shaped by the culture that we are reared in. So in the same sense that had you and I been reared in, in France, we would be speaking French today, um, we wouldn't have chosen as five-year-old young men to speak French versus English. Our culture just would have shaped us that way. Well, so also um, the the music that we are prevailingly exposed to shapes our musical sensibilities. Before you had electricity, before you had electronic ways of conveying music, All music was, by definition, live. People never had non-live music. And therefore, for many people, most of the music they were exposed to was music they themselves produced. Unless you were very wealthy, for instance, you couldn't go to a symphony every day of your life, but you could sing around the farm and around the home. And so uh, folk music was probably the predominant form of music that the entire human race was exposed to until roughly the turn from the 19th to the 20th century. Since then, the prevailing form of music people are exposed to is pop music, music designed to be commercially successful. In my dad's generation, of course, it would have been swing and big band. And then uh, beginning in the 60s, in my generation, it was more rock kinds of pop. And so now, almost everywhere we go, we run into background music. When you and I were young, um, the only place that occurred was in elevators. We call it elevator music. Um, but Muzak, the firm, recognized if they could sell the idea of background music, they could sell their music not only to elevators, but to the place where you pump your gasoline, where you shop for groceries, where you shop for clothing. So now almost everywhere we are surrounded by the sounds of pop music, so that for many people that's just what music sounds like. So anything that isn't guitar-accompanied or have a drum just doesn't sound like music to them.
0: Or, or it communicates something that uh, that they don't recognize. I, I, I love classical music. I don't see that as necessarily a moral statement. I, I'd like to make a moral argument about it. But uh, as, as someone who grew up uh, in choirs, in choruses, uh, trained in music, uh, playing an instrument in the band and in the orchestra, uh, well, my musical sensitivities are drawn to classical music, if nothing else – uh, but because of the complexity of it and the wonder of it and the and the tradition and the civilizational value of it. But you really don't play uh, a symphonic music or, or, or classical music or Baroque music as background uh, to a factory. But that but That's you correct. did play Muzak because Muzak became a way of regulating the way people work. I mean, after all, they were able to prove that you could get more efficient workers if you had this background music.
1: Correct. And, and Muzak can prove that you will sell more genes at Gap if they tailor their music to you than if you don't. Yeah. And so they've been very effective. But note then what it tries to accomplish. It tries to accomplish a kind of a disinterested amusement, right? If the verb muse means to think carefully about or to notice, amuse means not to really notice. And so they're kind of trying to also cultivate the sensibility of a kind of a mindlessness, a kind of deliberate mindlessness because... They want you to make impulse decisions as a shopper. They want to con- con- uh, convey to you, just go with the flow, don't really notice anything. That is to say, if, we, if you and I were very thoughtful about every purchase we made, we probably wouldn't purchase some of the things we do. And so they want to surround us with the kind of music that puts us in kind of a, a pleasant mood, a kind of a thoughtless, carefree mood, because that is more likely to, to cause us to purchase.
0: Well, you know, it also creates a certain ambiance, a a certain environment, a a media or a musical environment. Uh, Sometimes we're in a place uh, and my wife will hear a certain music and she'll say, I feel like I ought to be ordering from a menu uh, because it sounds like the kind of jazz, acoustical jazz that's the background to so many uh, rather upscale restaurants these days. And it seems to me that in many churches, they simply have developed their own environmental music that's uh, now just kind of the thing you expect when you walk into church.
1: That's correct. That's exactly right. And now the issue and question for me is this, who should be the arbiters of what a culture regards as music? And I don't think the answer is Madison Avenue, especially when we say, who should be the arbiters of the music the church uses to obey the command to praise God? Madison Avenue should not answer that question. The best theologians and musicians in the church should answer that question. And in Martin Luther's generation, he was that, both a musician and a theologian.
0: Who required every and, one of his theology graduates who would, who would preach uh, to be able to be a competent singer. He said he did not trust a theologian who could not sing.
1: That's correct. And he required all the students in the, uh, in the school system, the young uh, students, to study music.
0: By the way, that's still and true in a the, lot the, of Lutheran and, schools.
1: And they learned to sing parts. By the time they were in junior high school, when they had uh, annual town festivals and so forth, uh, the students from the school always performed, and they were able to sing all four parts.
0: I want to separate a couple of questions because I know some people listening to our conversation right now are going to say, what what, what we have here are two people who are just uh, establishing a certain style and taste as uh, as arbitrarily right and superior – uh, I want to separate a bit the the style issue here and the, even, say, the musical uh, epic uh, designation, whether it be classical, contemporary or, or anything else, and, and separate the question down to that of hymns uh, because that is the title of, of your book, Why Johnny Can't Sing Hymns. Now, in your book, Why Johnny Can't Preach, you explain that it's it's answerable by the prior questions, why he can't write and and why he can't read. Uh, What are the prior questions that we bring to the question, why Johnny can't sing hymns?
1: Uh, I think what it is, is simply the ubiquity of pop music. The reason people can't sing hymns is because they, they, they sound more than 40 years old. And so they don't sound like what most people regard to be music. And so they just can't connect emotionally and psychologically to it. It leaves them How did John Frame put it? It leaves them feeling cold. Hmm. And so the problem is not so much that the particular forms of music that our culture primarily employs are not very good, the style of question. The problem is that's all we hear. And so as a consequence, um, anything that's not recently written sounds hopelessly passé. Whereas the same Christians read books that are hundreds of years old. They don't mind reading, let's say, Luther or Calvin or Wesley. Um, They don't mind that. And they don't mind architecture that's hundreds of years old. If they go to Williamsburg, Virginia, they love the federal architecture of Christopher Wren. They love it and enjoy it. And the reason they can appreciate art forms other than music that are old is because those other art forms are not ubiquitous. But pop music in our culture is ubiquitous. It's all around us almost everywhere we go. And as a consequence, it shapes our sensibilities and causes us to think that only that kind of music is music, at least in the emotional sense. And so people just...
0: Yeah, connect. I think even speaking evangelistically or missionally the way uh, that many uh, Christians will uh, will want to speak today, they'll say you have to sing this this kind of music, you have to sing only this kind of music because this is the kind of music that the people you're trying to reach with the gospel, uh, the people you're trying to bring into uh Christian worship by means of the gospel, this is the only music that they know. This is the only musical language that they speak.
1: Yeah, that's that is frequently said. And the proper response is, um, if we were having a service to honor my late father, let's suppose it was Father's Day, and he was still living in Virginia, uh, and we were trying to determine what meal we should cook for him, we wouldn't ask what other people in our culture are eating that day. We'd say, you know, he loves a standing rib roast, and so we're going to have a standing rib roast. And so also, when Christians worship God, the the thing is how best to worship God and And that uh, when you ask that question, it doesn't matter what most people do in other circumstances. The proper question is what's the best way to do this thing in this peculiar circumstance
0: yeah uh, no, i think and there's so, a very legitimate point to be made there uh, and I didn't mean to cut you off there you you had an and so let me let you finish that
1: yeah well and the answer so is this for them to truly for a person to truly convert and become a part of of the worshipping community of Christ. He's going to have to do a lot of learning curves. He's going to have to learn to listen to a 30-minute sermon, for instance, which many people in our culture never listen to an oral address of 30 minutes. Right. He's going to have to learn all sorts of other things, and he may also have to learn how to join the great tradition of Christian hymnody. But it isn't difficult. When we were five and six years old uh, driving to the Chesapeake Bay on the weekends, Someone could start singing a hymn, and we would just join right
0: in. Well, absolutely. And, and one of Children the problems here is that we often package being evangelistic as meaning that we, we can only remain at the rudimentary state that a new convert uh, would find him or herself, uh, rather than understand that discipleship requires a growing deeper. In your book, you make a very interesting point. And uh, and by the way, uh, I will credit this uh, saying that I heard this some years ago. Someone described uh, one of the modern praise choruses as uh, one word, two notes, three hours. And uh, there's a certain uh, element of truth in that, although there is some some marvelous new music that is being written. And uh, and I'm glad to know and to sing that as well. But you make the point that it would be considered odd to the point of extremity. If in a local congregation they said, let's sing the the Gloria Patri or the doxology over and over and over and over again, that reminded me of something said by the Methodist theologian Jeffrey Wainwright at Duke, uh, when he defined a hymn as a doctrinal statement set to music. You know, that is a key test to me. A great deal of what is sung in churches these days could not possibly be defined as a doctrinal statement set to music.
1: That's correct. And when I teach my course here on the Psalms, the last three weeks of the course, we talk about liturgy in the broad sense, not technically Lutheran or Anglican liturgy, just liturgy. And we talk about what can we learn about hymn writing from the Psalms. And one of the first is this. The Psalms have existed for three or four thousand years without music. That is to say, many of us experience them as sheer biblical poetry. Most of us, you know, we read them devotionally in other ways or have them responsibly read at church. And for me, the test is this. If a hymn can survive without music, if the lyrics alone would survive without music, it's a good hymn. And if it won't survive, if no one would even bother with it, if it weren't set to music, it's not good enough. And if you think of it, many of our hymns, especially those of Cooper, uh, existed as Christian poetry before anyone ever put them to music. They did exist.
0: That's more... Typical than atypical. It is more typical that the words long preexisted the tune.
1: Yes, yes. It's actually, uh, uh, in in most hymns, uh, the lyrics had a self-standing existence before they were set to music. And I mentioned some of the authors uh, in the book somewhere uh, that did that. It's a virtual who's who of English poetry uh, when you go back and look at who wrote many of these hymns.
0: You know, I think again. Some people listening to this conversation would say, "You know, th- this sounds like two scolds." And uh, and yet, you know, I'm driven by the fact that number one, God's people ought to be worshiping in a way that uh, that maximizes the glory of God in worship. And 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 the Lord Himself has given us uh, the ability to sing and to understand meter and tune. And he has given us a psalter, which is the, the very standard for the way that we ought to be articulating his praise. And the second thing of my concern is that there are so many people who simply are missing out on all of this. I, I, I really feel almost heartbroken for generations of teenagers, children, young adults who simply don't know these hymns, and they don't know what they don't know.
1: Yeah, I, to me, um, uh, to, to imagine going through this fallen world without the sustenance, Of many fine and great hymns is just, I can hardly do it, and it it almost is heartbreaking to imagine that there are people who are going through this world without some of the really fine hymns. Um, Many people testify that in some of the difficult moments of their lives, what sustained them was the great courage-begetting power of a well-written hymn And uh, when our daughter, for instance, died of leukemia, the first daughter, um, for years my wife's favorite hymn afterwards was, Whatever My God Ordains is Right. Mm. And it was such a valuable hymn to to us to have already learned before that moment, so that it it was like an inflated life raft to carry us through a difficult moment. And for me, as I would hold Marian in the morning morning in the hospital and sing to her, it still was very important one day Uh, to hold that baby in my arms and sing on her behalf, hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes, shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks, earth's vain shadows flee, in life, in death, O Lord, abide with me. She was too young to pray her own prayers or to sing her own hymns, and so I had to sing that one for her. And there are people who will go through this world, they will have a child die, and they will not have the strength and faith that we had because some great hymn writer gave us that gift.
0: That is such a moving testimony, and I I don't think anyone can hear that without understanding the passion uh, that led you to write this book. You know, when you think about what a hymn represents also, one of the great comforts to me is to know that I'm singing what Christians have sung, not only for generations, but for centuries. When you stand up and sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, you're singing a song that gave sustenance to the Reformers in the 16th century. And and we're still singing today. You have to wonder how much of what is being written today. And again, I want to footnote that by saying there is some excellent music being written today. But what we're talking about here is the environment of music in so many of our churches, the, the worship in so many of our churches, that is the truncated, minimalist music that avoids the very substance we're talking about here.
1: When Hebrews 12 says that we haven't come to Mount Zion, so that when, in our Christian assemblies, you have not come to Mount Zion, but you have come to. And then it lists all the things we've come to. Three of them are references to other worshiping saints. Yes. Right? The spirits of just men made perfect, innumerable angels in festal gathering, uh, those the, the, whose names are among the firstborn from the dead, resurrected saints. And so it's a proper Christian impulse to want to sing A Mighty Fortress with Fire Martin, to want to sing I Greet Thee Whom I Sure Redeemer Art with John Calvin. To want to sing O Sacred Head Now Wounded with Bernard of Clairvaux in the 12th century. It's proper to want that. And what I'm suggesting is it's improper deliberately to cut ourselves off from that great heritage.
0: Absolutely. Let me ask you one other thing, Professor Gordon. I was recently on your campus there at Grove City College to deliver some lectures, and I got to meet so many of your wonderful students uh, you're with them, they're in your classes. Do you have hope for a recovery of uh, of true preaching and of the the church's hymnody in this generation now rising?
1: Uh, I have less hope for the first, more hope for the second. Uh, many of my students who were reared in contemporary-only churches um, are almost angered when they attended church that uses traditional hymns to discover that they're 18, 19, or 20 before they learned about this they feel that they've been robbed. Um, And they don't mind a blended service. They don't mind a little of the contemporary, uh, nor do I. Uh, But when they realize that they've been reared without any of these great hymns, they feel cheated, and they ought to feel cheated. And if anything, the movement now seems uh, to be swinging back a little bit. Uh, Mark Moore uh, uh, interviewed me for CT uh, recently And uh, he said that he thinks in the contemporary churches he goes to, he notices that once or twice a month they are singing a traditional hymn. And I think that's wonderful. They're rediscovering the Catholic heritage of hymn singing. And I do think we may see uh, people realizing that an exclusive diet of contemporary is unnecessary and unedifying. But as to preaching, um, I think the sensibilities of our culture uh, are such that we are not likely immediately or quickly to see improvement there. The only optimism I have there is this. when I mentioned earlier that many people have never heard a steady diet of good preaching. Because of the Internet today, people can hear the good preachers. They can hear Mark Dever. They can hear uh, Tim Keller. They can hear you. They can hear uh, uh, Lig Duncan. They can hear David Hall. There are good preachers out there. Uh, Alistair Begg, and so forth. What happens if people listen to those people on a regular basis, they will realize that what they're getting in their local church is inadequate. And maybe that will at least provoke people to say, we expect better in the future. But if young men go to seminary, uh, having played video games and computer games and watched television and YouTube with most of their leisure time, and and do not read literature, and do not read anything carefully, uh, and do not compose, uh, seminary in three years cannot undo uh, what's missing. It just can't.
0: Well, I will only be able to say that I affirm that. Uh, there is much that we can do, but we cannot bring an entire pre-education to bear on those who arrive at the seminary ready to preach. We just have That's to correct. hope. and And I do have some confidence here, I'll share with you, Professor, uh, we do have to hope that, uh, that the Holy Spirit of God will help to encourage and uh, to sustain and, indeed, uh, to prepare uh, those who are committed to true biblical preaching uh, to, uh, to pick up what has been lost in the past and to, to gain it for the generations to come. Thank you so much for joining yes, I- me for Thinking in Public.
1: Great to be here. Uh, great to, have, to be with you on your program. And, of course, you know it was great to have you here on our campus.
0: Well, thank you so much. Look forward to the next time we get to share a conversation. Yep, I do too. I do find it fascinating that God made us his musical creatures. He loves music so much that he made his human creatures able to praise Him by the use of this gift, by not only the writing and composing of music, but the ordering of thoughts, the, the addition of meter and rhythm, and all the things that make for music in all of its glory. And He gave us the capacity to use this in order to glorify Himself. And as Dr. Gordon indicated, when you start looking to the biblical teachings about heaven, it is extraordinary how much about heaven is about music. And evidently, if we're going to be concerned with music to the glory of God for eternity, if we're going to be faithful in this life, we'd better be concerned about how to glorify God with music in the living of these days. The question why Johnny can't sing hymns is thus an urgent question, not just a question of some kind of intellectual or cultural interest, not just a question of some kind of uh, of doctrinal preoccupation, but a question of genuine urgency, not just for a church, but also for parents, Who are going to be raising up the next generation of Johnnies who, if things don't change, also can't preach and won't be able to sing hymns. Given what we read about the church and the Christian life in Scripture, given what we learn by observing church history, it's hard to imagine that there could be any greater issues of our concern than that the word be rightly preached— and that the worship of God be rightly structured and, and rightly conducted and rightly directed, that we actually say what needs to be said in preaching and hear what we need to hear, and that we articulate by the common confession of our congregational singing that which is most pleasing to God, that, that which draws out and affirms the deepest and most precious biblical truths, that, that which is in its glory and in its essence literally a doxology— that is, a praise to the one true and living God. Now, in this conversation with Dr. Gordon, so many things have come to light, and certainly we need to have some kind of diagnosis and some kind of, uh, of description of how we got to this point. How is it that we have arrived at the point here in the early years of the 21st century when we seem to know less in terms of how we worship? We have brought less to how we articulate the praise of God rather than more. We expect less out of preaching rather than more. You know, this issue of media ecology is really important, and I think not only as church leaders think about this and preachers and those who are leading worship, but but also as parents and educators think about this, we need to realize that we are up against an enormous challenge with this media ecology. That phrase that Dr. Gordon and others have borrowed from Neil Postman is so very important for us because we are living in the midst of this media world. We are bombarded by the kinds of impulses and signals and habits of mind and habits of ear and habits of expression that come by means of the media that are rather constantly the ocean in which we swim. We look at that and we recognize that Yes, there is a missiological and evangelistic necessity to connect to that culture, to, to, to use the, the mechanisms, the components, the styles, and the, the, the modes of that culture, and to exploit those things for the glory of God by means of evangelism and cross-cultural uh, application and transmission of the gospel and, and all the rest. But there always has to be a different question asked once you are inside the context of the church. And that is, how can we most gloriously, most faithfully, most substantially praise and honor God? That's going to require all of us, not just some of us. That's going to require all of us to learn things we otherwise would not learn, in order to sing things we otherwise would not sing, in order to be able to hear, if that is our task, or to preach, if that is our calling, a message that we otherwise wouldn't know how to deliver And wouldn't know how to hear. Now, one of the most helpful aspects of all this is to remember that there are some prior competencies that are necessary. One of the issues of the Christian life today is that we, without apology, have to be the people who still believe that reading and writing are important. After all, we're talking about a Lord Jesus Christ uh, who said that, speaking of the Old Testament scriptures, these are they that testify of me. We cannot understand Him without understanding the scriptures. And to hear the voice of God, which is the most desperate need of Christ's people, we're going to hear it through the preaching of the Word, or we're not going to hear it. And when it comes to right worship, it's hard to imagine there could be anything more important, and that's going to require us to go back and learn, even in the midst of this massively pervasive and even invasive media ecology, we're going to have to learn some things that the world wouldn't otherwise require us to learn. Now, we're going to have to learn to appreciate some things and to do some things. We're going to have to learn some musical competencies The previous generations learned out of necessity. Well, maybe we also need to recognize there's a necessity here as well because we do not want to raise excessive generations who also include those who cannot preach and those who cannot sing hymns. I'm very much indebted to the conversation with Professor Gordon. I think you will be as well when to commend his books, Why Johnny Can't Sing Hymns and Why Johnny Can't Preach. I also want to suggest that you take this conversation to your dinner table and to your next meeting of your congregation where Christians gather. These ought to be among the things we're talking about. Thanks for listening to Thinking in Public. I want you to be aware of a special preview event at Southern Seminary designed for those who are considering seminary and just needing to know more. We hope you'll visit our campus on April the 28th and the 29th for Southern Seminary Preview Days. For more information, go to our website at sbts.edu or simply call us at 800-626-5525. Ask for the admissions office and they'll be glad to give you full information about this event. It's kind of an immersion in the life of the seminary that will give you a very hands-on experience and a first-hand knowledge of what seminary is all about. I'll meet you next time for Thinking in Public. Until then, keep thinking.